Because we're a small community and the people involved in ACES are involved in everything, they really understand the connection between, you know, that we need housing in order to have teachers at the school, in order to have a daycare, in order to be able to hire hired men. In addition to like the tire shop and all of those businesses are key to our ranches being successful and so we need to make sure that those businesses have the support and the infrastructure that they need in town as well. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the Life in the Land films in their entirety, and I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we're hearing from Laura Nolan, a rancher in the central Montana plains of Winnet, Montana. An hour east of Lewistown and 90 minutes north of Billings, Winnet is located in Petroleum County, which the county is 1,600 square miles, but home to only 500 people. It is the least populous county in Montana and the seventh least populous county in the United States. The town of Winnet, with 188 residents, is the county seat and the only town in the entire county. I was only able to get a glimpse of this town, unfortunately, in my short stay, but I was able to witness that this community is full of heart, of hardworking folks who treat their neighbors like family. Laura will describe more on the geography here, but the prairies of central Montana are a part of the Northern Great Plains ecoregion, which is one of the last intact temperate grasslands in the world, and key habitat and wildlife corridors for a plethora of biodiversity, from soil microbes to pronghorn to migratory birds. This landscape also supports human communities, primarily ranchers producing quality food for the world and the towns and services that support that work. Laura Nolan grew up on her family's ranch here in Winnet. She left home for a decade, getting a degree in history from Montana State University, a master's in historic preservation from the University of Oregon, then working for the State Historic Preservation Office in Wyoming. Laura returned to her home of Winnet, Montana about 10 years ago to raise her family and continue her family's tradition as a cattle rancher. Her passion and heart is clearly tied to not only the land and waters here, but the community of Winnet. Laura speaks to her involvements with locally-led organization Winnet Aces, whose holistic approach touches on everything from ranch viability, ecosystem health, and reviving old buildings to serve the needs of the community. She also speaks to her work with the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition and the value in partnerships and local voices leading the work. In this conversation, Laura offers inspiration and insight for others who may be looking to push forward a locally driven group in their own communities, from boosting Main Street to the health of your watershed. This segment also features Aaron Clausen, who's the Senior Program Officer for World Wildlife Fund's Sustainable Ranching Initiative. Laura begins by sharing with us about where we are standing having this conversation and the larger picture of how she would describe central Montana. So we're, we're standing on the Nolan Ranch, uh, is the ranch that my husband and I leased from my parents. So it was previously the Brady Ranch. My parents bought it from my grandparents um, who bought it in the 50s. The Brady's originally homesteaded in this area in 1914. Um, here in central Montana, it's prairie grasses, sagebrush. Um, we're moving away from the foothills of the mountains, but we're not far from the Muscleshell River and the Missouri River breaks. Uh, it's wide open, but there are a lot of coolies that sneak up on you. It's not flat. Our western Montana friends think that it's flat, but it's not. It is wide open, not very many people, but, but it's full. Full of a lot of wildlife, full of a lot of activity. Uh, we have especially pronghorn and sage grouse um, species that people are, are worried about. We see a lot and, and think about when we're doing our land management. We're far from a lot of places. Most people go to Lewistown and Roundup for their, their parts and their equipment and their feed and those kinds of things. And so we're in what used to be the Class 7C district that we all play sports together and do academic um, competitions together and recognize each other shopping in Lewistown. So there's a, a broader community. Anyone who's ever lived in a small town knows this concept. Residents wear a lot of hats. 
that those towns that may seem sleepy are filled with extremely busy, hardworking residents, all multitasking to keep the community going. I grew up in a town like this. Your bus driver was also the coach, the mailman on the Main Street Association, and probably also the county commissioner. Laura explains what this looks like in Winnet. In rural Montana, everybody wears a lot of hats. We're all busy with a lot of things. Well, you could own a ranch and be a business owner and then be on volunteer fire and ambulance and drive the bus, be on the cemetery board, be on the stock growers board. If you're on the stock growers board, you're automatically on the predator board. So there are a lot of things to be involved with and a lot of things to keep going is why people are involved in so many things to keep all of it rolling. I asked Laura about her own roots to where we are, this place, the community, and what lens she looks at this landscape through. This is where I grew up. This is where my dad grew up. My grandpa grew up north of here. Um, I'm the fifth generation, so my kids are the sixth generation. You start to think about what your, your family, your ancestors experienced and what they know that doesn't necessarily mean that you know those things too, but that you're just a little more grounded in where you are having had that connection. And so I, I um, grew up just a few miles from my grandpa. My grandma passed away when I was just a baby, but my grandpa was a big part of our lives growing up. And so we'll be out and I'll think, hmm, I wonder what this looked like, you know, when grandpa was 30. Or even now in thinking about making land management decisions. And he was really progressive in putting in water infrastructure. And he tore out a lot of dams and put in um, wells and pipelines kind of well before his time. That is something that we benefit from hugely today, that those pipelines are already there especially in a drought year like there is this year where all the reservoirs are dry. That's something that we haven't dealt with for a long time, dry reservoirs, because we have water troughs. And the same thing, my parents on this place put a lot of time into developing hay fields um, that we, you know, are basically then just handed to us. And it's a lot of work to maintain everything, but we don't have to start from scratch. Other people have done that for us, and those people are our, our family, and we know what went into that. It's a combination of maybe added pressure to keep it going, but also a lot of pride in what has been accomplished and what people have been able to put together to keep it going. Because it, it is a hard place. There was a reason that people left in the 30s because it was the 30s, <laughs> because it's a hard place. And uh, so people have to adapt. And I think that, that that describes Petroleum County really well. In a nutshell, too, there aren't very many of us. And so we're maybe a little bit more independent than a lot of places in that we will adapt so that we can keep going. Where I think some places kind of dig in their heels and this is the way we do things and maybe we don't work with those partners because of whatever happened in the past where we're maybe a little more survivalists. So we're a little more open to different ways to get that done. And that's part of what Win at Aces has kind of been all about is um, who can we work with that has shared values um, but brings, brings opportunities that we didn't previously have. And that, that just does build on the excitement. Laura shares what she loves so much about her town of Winnet. So I love Winnet because of the people. I'm always fascinated by people. Everybody has a cool story to tell, even if it seems like it's just a regular person, they have a really cool story to tell. But I think the two things that I love the most about Winnet, they root for each other and they help each other out and really come together in times of need. And then that people work hard and they value that in each other. And on the topic of hardworking, she goes into sharing about the inception and work of locally led organization Win It Aces, which she is the operations coordinator for. Just a note, there are some acronyms referenced here. TNC is the nonprofit organization, the Nature Conservancy, and BLM is the Bureau of Land Management a government agency within the Department of the Interior. WINIT-ACES stands for Agricultural Community Enhancement and Sustainability. 
When we had our first meeting in the fall of 2016, we didn't intend to meet to become a group. We didn't know that when it ACES was going to happen. We were just a group of producers that um, Bill Milton and Diane Algren, a rancher in the Winnet area, decided that we should have this neighborhood meeting to talk mostly about wildlife issues and how we could address wildlife issues ourselves as landowners and figure out solutions as opposed to the BLM saying this is what you need to do for like sage grouse specifically. So we started out talking about wildlife, but the, the issue was really the community in general and what do we see as problems for the community and how do we address those. So the conversation became much larger and everybody acknowledged that wildlife is an important issue, but the overarching issue of how we can keep our community a place where people want to live and people want to move to was the bigger issue. The first thing that we launched into that I guess kind of made us become a group was serving local beef in the school. And there were a few people at the meeting who had already researched that quite a bit, how we would get local beef served in the school. And there were several stock grower members there. And so they said, as stock growers, we'll, we'll go out to our membership and see who wants to donate beef to the school. And so that was the first thing. And we met in October and November of 2016. And by February of 2017, we were serving Petroleum County beef in the Winnet schools. So that was our first project. Our other big project is that we as ACES would either lease or buy a ranch that comes for sale. When property comes up for sale, it's usually too expensive for agriculture to pay for. So if you're a rancher and you want to buy the land, you have to have some other source of income to be able to afford it, which doesn't happen. So that means that there are absentee landowners who are usually buying property for, their rec for its recreation value. And, and the reason that that matters is those people don't live in our community. So we only have 500 people in our county. We need every person to be on volunteer fire and ambulance and school board and county commissioner and all of those things. So when people buy property and then they don't live here, it, it really impacts everything. And so our goal was to keep property locally owned and locally managed and then to provide uh, grazing access to especially young producers who have a hard time getting into agriculture and staying in agriculture and one of the reasons is that land is too expensive to buy and then it's hard to find grazing leases. So we can manage this for, um, for economic benefit for the local community, keeping people here or bringing people in um, and then also manage it for conservation values too. And so in working on that project, um, we've become, we've met a lot of non-traditional partners that wasn't something in 2016 any of us would have imagined that we'd be working with the Nature Conservancy or the World Wildlife Fund. But in investigating how you would go about buying a ranch, um, we met the Rancher Stewardship Alliance and we met the Nature Conservancy. And um, Rancher Stewardship Alliance is RSA. RSA has been working with the Matador Ranch and their grass bank for 20 years now and just kind of introduced us to the idea that maybe if you embrace things that you don't know you'll learn a lot of new exciting things and different ways to do things and people who are helpful to agriculture. We didn't know that the Nature Conservancy or World Wildlife Fund supported agriculture or family ranching until we welcomed them to a meeting and got to learn more about them and got to know their staff. They're very big organizations uh, that make people uncomfortable because they're very big organizations, but we know the people in Montana and the people we work with and we've developed a really trusting relationship with them. And because of that, we've, in the last five years, will, um, by the end of 2021, we will have created two and a half um, positions in Winnet, jobs in Winnet because of support, financial support, but also just technical assistance and other support from those organizations. Rancher Stewardship Alliance, or RSA, is a rancher-led organization based in Malta, Montana. And they do work on the ground that creates huge benefits to the health of the land, the greater ecosystem, and the vitality of local ranch operations. You can hear more about their work in the podcast episode with Bud and Sheila Walsh. So when we first started meeting, Bill Milton introduced us to Brian Martin at the Nature Conservancy. 
And then Brian's really the one that kind of introduced us to Ranchers Stewardship Alliance. And their staff, Charlie Messerly, is their ranch manager. And Charlie came down and met with us and said, you guys need to just join forces with RSA. You're working on the same things and you're wanting to do the same things. And uh, so the combination of TNC and RSA being involved, I think is what made us more comfortable with TNC having that group of ranchers in RSAs telling us about their experience and the, um, the benefits and their concerns and just having a really honest conversation. This shows you just how much can come to fruition from simply connecting with others and having conversations and gives a little insight to the grass bank model as this is something that can be applied in other areas. We felt like we could really look into how the matador is run, what a grass bank means and what it means to create a grass bank. Um, which is much more complicated than it sounds. And we actually have hired a consultant to help us look at that more because it's a lot more than just putting together millions of dollars, which in itself is a, is a big project. But all of the different things of like, not just how you manage the property and what values you're managing it for, but also who you're managing it for. And that we're managing it for those specific producers, but also the impact that it's gonna have on the greater community, both in conservation best management practices, but also in creating economic opportunity too, and supporting both ranchers as well as local businesses in the Winnet area. My associate producer Cassie Heron and I sat in on an ACES board meeting while we were in Winnet. There were about 15 folks gathered in a meeting space in the local church in town. While this was a relatively small group compared to the All Aces meetings, which usually has a few dozen attendees, you could feel the energy and excitement of people, not only to discuss the matters that they knew were bringing positive change to their community, but for the sheer social connection of it. Most of the board members were also ranchers, and likely held many other positions in town. And there were also people from agencies and statewide or national conservation nonprofits. You would never know who represented what without asking them, as there was a uniformity of just down-to-earth, hardworking, good-natured folks. We spoke with Aaron Clausen after the meeting, who's the senior program officer for the World Wildlife Fund's Sustainable Ranching Initiative. World Wildlife Fund has been participating with Winnet Aces almost since they began, I believe, in 2015-2016 as a partner to help them meet their goals as an organization, kind of with the idea being that sustainable ranching, so ranches that are both ecologically and financially sustainable, in other words, profitable, are better able to make sustainable land use decisions, which are good for the longevity of their operation, the sustainability of the grassland habitats, and the wildlife that use it. And what is neat about these meetings, when having you know folks from all different backgrounds, operations, together at a table working um, through problems. Yeah, what can be neat about um, community meetings in very small towns could be a number of things. Um, they're really honest, I'd say, and at this point they've been around long enough to know what their goals are, I think, and how to get there, who they need to talk to in the beef industry, in the conservation funding world who are invested in this landscape, even if they don't live here. <clears throat> and so now they tend to be pretty honest straightforward conversations about how do we get to our goal of having when it be a community that people want to move to that look to as sort of in a community engaged in the industry that supports it and the connection that has to the landscape I'd say. On the element of having folks that might come in with different priorities what do you see at that table? The realities of it where like sometimes we don't always agree you know just the value of having that diversity in opinion and background together to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we think about and talk about all the time, maybe not at, at open tables, but at side conversations. And I'd say it's, that honesty does make it way, its way into the meeting more often now. You know, the beef industry and conservation and wildlife advocacy are all really broad segments of the population, the constituencies the people that rely on beef for sustenance, the people that are interested in wildlife, span a, a broad range of political beliefs and um, places that they live, whether that's urban and rural. And so I think, to, and I always say, the benefit of having these different viewpoints at the table is they all represent a different segment of that population who are interested in the work that's going on here. 
And so I see our job at World Wildlife as taking the story back to the people that read World Wildlife and our constituency, people that are interested broadly in wildlife and their habitats, and talk about the work that rural communities are doing in agriculture for, for wildlife habitat, because those things are really joined at the hip in this landscape. If you if you spend enough time in these rural landscapes visiting with ranchers, it'd be really hard to not realize that they are as invested, if not more invested, in the well-being of their grassland habitats, the diversity of wildlife, the abundance of wildlife year to year, than certainly than people that, that don't live in this landscape. And I'd say at least as much as most people that call themselves wildlife enthusiasts, they see every day what wildlife are doing. When there's a snowstorm and nesting birds take a hit, they are gonna be the first people that are upset about it. And they use a lot of times the presence of certain wildlife as an indicator of um, like how their ranch may be faring later in the year with respect to drought and things like that. So I think any rancher you talk to would be as excited to talk about wildlife as you and probably um, have, a, have a longer history of, of watching them and may know more about them than, than people who call themselves wildlife experts, including me. So, When it aces, with the support of its partners, helps landowners fund conservation projects, including reseeding native grasslands, implementing sustainable grazing practices, water infrastructure improvements, and the installation of fencing that's compatible for both cattle and wildlife. And now back to Laura, speaking at her ranch. One of the things that's really fun is that we're all excited about what we're doing, and those, our partners, are excited about what we're doing too. So when you get a group of people together that, you know, you feed off of each other, whether it's negative and angry or it's excited and happy, and we feed off of each other in a really positive way. It's always great to have people come and tell you, you guys are doing such great things. <laughs> it's hard to say we don't want you to come back if people are going to be so supportive. But um, one of the things that I, so this is an RSA example in TNC. TNC does a science symposium in, um, at the Matador Ranch every year. And it's great. It's um, agency people and NGO and university and students and ranchers all in the same place talking about different aspects to conservation and land management. Uh, but it's a great discussion and it's a great interaction with all of those groups. Everybody has a different perspective and everybody there is coming at it from a different perspective. But that we can all acknowledge that and acknowledge that we don't always agree, but that we can still come together and talk about solutions and the, and the best way to manage things, even if, if it comes from a different place. And for those who may be interested in starting up a community group in your own areas, sometimes it helps to see a little of the nuts and bolts of how you can structure that group. So ACES meets quarterly. We have large all-member uh, meetings, and we have committee updates from land committee, education committee, community enhancement committee, uh, and other updates on Beef on the School and the Community Center and those kinds of projects too. And then we have a special speaker. And then the board meets every month. And we meet at the Methodist Church and um, we invite partners and other members to attend. But then that's just a um, business, but business usually lasts for at least two hours because we have so many different things going on. But then our all ACEs meetings are big potlucks and social gatherings. When it aces truly embodies what it is to have a holistic approach in their work, connecting agricultural sustainability and profitability to the health of the land, the waters, the wildlife, to the well-being of the local rural community. All of these elements depend on the vitality of the other. In an oversimplified explanation of a very complex concept, ranchers prioritize a healthy grassland ecosystem for their own livelihood and their intrinsic want to steward the land, a vibrant local community supports the services that residents such as ranchers need to succeed, stay, and to attract next-generation ranchers. These landscapes are kept open and as intact habitats due to also being rangeland. So if ranchers are pressured to sell or lack a younger generation there to take on the role, the land is put up for sale and put at risk of uses that could mismanage or fragment these landscapes. Laura elaborates on this 
and how When It Aces knows the ripple effect of putting emphasis on the well-being and vitality of the community itself. So one of the things that I'm told is unique about ACES, I'm not really familiar with other groups, but is that we're, we're a nonprofit that's really focused on everything, not just land conservation um, or economic development or um, social issues. We really kind of wrap it all together. And I, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. And one is because we're a small community and the people involved in ACES are involved in everything. They really understand the connection between, you know, that we need housing in order to have teachers at the school, in order to have a daycare, in order to be able to hire hired men. We need to have all of these pieces in addition to like our fuel supplier and the tire shop and all of those businesses are key to our ranches being successful and so we need to make sure that those businesses have the support and the infrastructure that they need in town as well. Laura was kind enough to take Cassie and I on a walking tour of the town of Winnet. The main road coming into town held most of the public attractants. The post office, the general store, the courthouse, a bar and grill, and a couple of churches. The historic city hall remains standing, likely over a century old, juxtaposed by the neighboring building, the current functioning city hall. From an outsider's perspective, it was a very quiet town. But after getting an insider's tour, we felt the buzz of energy that was percolating here. Laura began our tour at the Winnet School, which, as many folks may know, can serve as the energy center to small towns. So we're here at the Winnet School, which is a K-12 school. There's about 85 students, kindergarten through senior. The enrollment is declining, although it's not declining significantly, maybe not as much as some other smaller schools. Maybe because when it's a county seat, so it's the county seat um, for the county government, but then also there's town government too, so there are a few more job opportunities in Winnet than there might be in other communities. We won a Blue Ribbon Award for academics, but also the school lunch program has won awards. We serve local beef that's all donated by Petroleum County ranchers. It's a bigger process than you would think because of the way the meat has to be processed to be served at the school. They're, the brand inspector donates his time to inspect the, the animals. Somebody volunteers to haul them to slaughter. They've been going to Miles City um, for that and then they, because that's a USDA approved facility, and then they go on the mail truck to Jordan where they're processed and then the Jordan facility um, donates freezer space until the school can go and pick them up. Um, so it's kind of a big process, but our kids eat all our own beef. The school struggles the same issues as all the other rural schools around. We get a lot of new teachers right out of school. Um, it's their first job and they usually only stay for a few years. And so we're always looking for new teachers. Uh, teacher housing is a huge issue where those teachers will live. We feel like we have a really great school that is a reason, one of the reasons we moved home was we wanted our kids to go to school here and a lot of other people my age have that same reason. Uh, new people coming to the community would want to know that they have a good school to send their kids to and that the school's going to stay open. That's always a concern. But for sure when we're looking for people, whether it's on the ranch or the store's looking for somebody, it's the same, they're looking at the same things of the school and if the school's going to stay open and what kind of quality education their kids are going to get and that we're going to be able to continue to offer things like art and music. This year we don't have a music teacher, we do have an art teacher. Last year we didn't have an art teacher but we did have a music teacher. Those kinds of issues of how we fund those positions is an issue. There were like 130 openings for music teachers across the state last year and there were like 25 music teachers. So it's not just an issue that that we're facing is an issue that everybody's facing, and I think the big schools are facing too. We then moved down a couple of blocks to the Methodist Church, which also doubles for a space to hold local meetings and gatherings. Winnet Aces held their board meeting here the night before. So Aces has a lot of projects, and and we go at it with like, what what are the community needs? And we feel like the two top needs in our community are housing and daycare. And what can we do to provide childcare that then means um, there are more people are able to go to work. And so we started talking about a daycare quite a while ago and one of our members is also really involved at the Methodist Church and she talked with, uh, with the other church members about getting one started at the, 
the Methodist Church here. It was sparked from a community planning meeting that ACES held and we were all sitting around eating supper and one of the guys said kind of joking, well the church would sure make a nice daycare and kind of rolled from there. There's a void for um, daycare. We don't have a daycare and when it, there hasn't been a daycare for a long time. There have been a few people who will, who watch kids. They are doing other things too usually. It's not just um, providing childcare. And so it's a big issue for getting teachers at the school or getting um, people to work at the store or people to work at the courthouse, whether or not they have a place for their kids to go. Laura speaks about the need for locally driven groups and organizations such as ACEs to accommodate for schedules of folks who have kids, or to even accommodate for kids to come along to events or meetings. This is good food for thought for others looking to start local groups in their own communities, as it makes all the difference of whether or not you get a true diverse age range of involvement in your group. So either being open to having people bring their kids, and maybe it's a little bit more chaotic than you would prefer, or making sure that there's a place for kids to go for their parents to be able to come, means that their parents are here. And so that means both that you're getting more people involved, um, but also that you're getting a wider range of people involved because you've got people who might have babies and little kids um, as well as the grandparents who, who don't have that. Um, that they need to plan around of where their kids are going to go while they're at this thing. We also, we do things at all different times of the day and that kind of factors into it too. Um, a lot of the meetings that I go to that I plan are done in time for me to pick my kids up from school or pick them up from sports or whatever they're doing um, so they don't have to wait around or so that I don't have to make an extra trip to town. Um, and everybody else being willing to do that makes a big difference on who can be involved. We then walk two blocks up to a structure that lies at the center of ACE's current community development work, a historic two-story building with a western facade front. To the untrained eye, one could definitely say that the aged building was on its last leg. But when Laura painted the vision for us, you could visualize its next chapter was just beginning. The building was going to be torn down to make room for the community center who owned the lot. When it ACE's rallied to take on the project, and planned to move the building two blocks down the street to a lot they were able to purchase. Laura walks us through the vision they have for it now. So this is the Oddfellows building, but a lot of people remember it as the Sugar Shack. Um, but it has now been empty for 30-some years, and the community center has given it to the ACES Community Enhancement Committee. We're going to move it about two blocks down Main Street. It was built about 1914, so it is one of the oldest buildings in Winnet. And our vision for it is to meet housing needs. So the second floor would be an apartment space. And then um, really we want a coffee and ice cream shop, maybe bakery and some breakfast goods. Um, we will finish the interior of the building and then probably rent it to somebody that wants to use it as a business space. So someone other than a coffee shop owner wants to, to use it, that'll be okay. But our vision is a coffee shop on Main Street. Um, and it's a great big, a great big space to work with and would just provide a, an informal meeting space in town for people to gather in. This, this project has been really great. People have really shown a lot of support for it and I think part of it is because it was the Sugar Shack. People have memories here and want to see those continue. So when we get the building, we basically will have a framed in building already. So it actually um, makes the numbers work much better than if we were to start from zero and build a brand new building. Laura then walks us up the street to the newly built foundation, which is where the Oddfellows Hall will be relocated. There's four lots here that ACEs purchased, which is also really exciting because we won't stop here with this. This project will take us a while, but before we're done, we'll develop these other lots too. We dealt with the landowner to get a really great price on four lots here. We got a large donation from one individual and then we did fundraising to be able to buy the lots and get this all done and ready. I credit Laura Keel with getting us into this project and she felt like we've lost so many of our historic buildings, here's one we can save, so let's go ahead and save it, why not? She's the gal at the Methodist Church that said let's do a daycare and she does the books for the Methodist Church. Um, she's part of ACES, she's on the fire department and she also works in the summer, she's a rancher, she also works for DNRC in the summer fighting fire. So when we're working on this project, 
about half the people working on this project were also on volunteer fire. So every time a storm came through, I was like, we can't get a fire tonight because those guys won't be able to show up tomorrow. Um, and we didn't, thankfully, have any fires that they couldn't, sh that was the reason that they couldn't show up. They were still all able to come. There goes one of our county commissioners who's also an ACES board member. So the foundation was dug and all of this done with 250 hours of volunteer labor in the month of July when it was 105, 110 degrees. Um, so that was, that's a lot of the ways that we get a lot of our projects done, but that's how we got the foundation done here. Our community enhancement group is the core of about 10 really active people, um, but we got some extras that were, um, like we started work and they walked by and they're like, hey, we wanna help with that. Let us know when we can help. So that was great. The uh, getting volunteers is an interesting question because there are a lot of people who are really committed to their communities and volunteer a lot of time. They're already volunteering a lot of time. They're on the school board. Our county commissioners only get paid for their meeting days. They don't have like office hours that they come in and get paid for. So all of their work they're doing outside of meetings is volunteer, um, ambulance, fire, all those people. And so those are all the same people that are working on these projects too. But this is a project people are really excited about. And so people just keep showing up and keep volunteering. They also keep buying raffle tickets and things like that. <laughs> As Laura said, Winna Aces has a lot of projects. So it doesn't stop here. They're also in the process of converting the second floor of the courthouse into apartment units and business workspaces. And the offices and apartments are based on a real community need for housing. They'll be small apartments, and so we think that'll be great for teachers especially, uh, but also retired people, um, retired ranchers who maybe are done on the ranch but don't want to leave the community. There'll be a place here for them. Um, and other people that maybe just want to move to our community just because they like it. And the offices might be individual offices, but they also might be co-working spaces where it would be a big space where people would just have their own desk or whatever. And then it also would be like our county extension agent is in Fergus County, but maybe they come once a week to win it and they have their desk and win it once a week or the accountant or those kinds of professionals that are mostly based in Lewistown, but have a lot of um, customers or, or get a lot of business from the Winnet area. They can come here um, just occasionally and have a space for office work too. Hopefully this glimpse into what a community-driven group in Winnet is doing to revitalize their town not only shows you how much heart lies in Winnet, but maybe this sparks inspiration for your own town. If these are needs that your own community has, and you too have buildings that are sitting empty, never underestimate what can develop out of some folks having a what-if conversation and a determined work ethic. We have buildings, they're just not being used. So let's, let's figure out how we can use some of those buildings to meet our needs, whether it's daycare or housing or just um, better quality of life through more businesses. When it used to be full with a lot of people and a lot of buildings. And so it's, it's important to remember that, to remember that we, we did have an accountant and we had a doctor and we had all those things and we can provide those things ourselves if we want to do that again. That drives the economy, but it, it also, um, you know, the community identity is a real thing and community spirit is a real thing. And anytime you can take what you used to be proud of and be proud of it again, it just kind of breathes new life into the community. In the spring of 2022, with the involvement of local volunteers and businesses, the Oddfellows Hall was loaded on the flatbed of a semi-truck and moved the two blocks to its new foundation, where renovations and restorations can begin for its new chapter within the community. And now we're back on the Nolan Ranch with Laura. So really ACES formed over wanting to make sure that Winnet and, and Petroleum County is a nice place to live, that people want to live here. And, and really we were thinking about young agriculture, uh, young producers, young ranchers, and families. And everybody wants families to be and have more kids in the school and more activities, more action going on in town. When the school closes, it's not long after that, that the community really fizzles and dies because there's no center there bringing people together. So for a variety of reasons, our focus has kind of been on young producers, 
the need to bring people back or keep people in the community and how we can provide economic opportunities as well as just quality of life opportunities to make it a place for that people want to live. You know, as the population declines, it's not just the school cl that closes, but then eventually the grocery store closes and the post office closes and there's no one then to respond to a 911 call and a fire call and um, serve on the weed board and all of those kinds of things. And there's also, I feel like with our generation, maybe there are a lot of people who have come back to win it that have the attitude of why not? Why can't we have those things and win it? And so that has led to a lot of, um, you know, why not work on the courthouse? Why not use it again? It was used before, let's use it again. It's gonna be different than it was before. We're not gonna bring back what it was in 1920, um, but we can adjust for how things are now and what those needs are. And um, we just start one project at a time, or we're not really starting one project at a time, we're kind of starting lots of projects at a time, but one step at a time. And things just fall into place. We joke a lot about if you never get started, it's never gonna happen. And that a lot of times people are afraid to get started. And a lot of the projects we decided, we'll just do, you know, we'll do this. We'll do the feasibility study with the courthouse. And we did that. And then we got funding to do preliminary architecture. And that's what we're wrapping up now. And so we're not sure yet what the next step is gonna be. But we are sure if we don't keep taking them, it's not gonna happen. And then the same with the Odd Fellows redevelopment and restoring the old building. If no one had said, let's save the old building, then it would be torn down. But somebody said, let's try it. So we are because there's no good reason other than it's too much work. We're a lot of people who know how to work hard, so we can, we can handle that part. And then we've found friends and partners in a lot of places that we didn't know we had that are willing to support us, whether it's land conservation or community enhancement and building a coffee shop. <laughs> we've got a lot of support. We feel, you know, a little bit of responsibility and obligation to each other because we've gotten into all these projects together and nobody's going to be the one to tap out. But that, that we really do have fun together doing things. So that makes it a lot easier to come back. And that there is, it is a true uh, group effort. So I'm the person standing here talking about it, but that there are a lot of people who've done, who've spent a lot of hours and done a lot of research and um, put their own skills to really great use to get us to where we are. And that's it too. I think that there's no like, you know, one person that everybody's relying on or one person who's putting all of their time into it. Everybody's doing it together. It really is a group effort. And it's a, uh, you know, a great social experiment in how we are social animals. We have fun together and we all pitch in and help and that makes it, um, it makes it easier, but it also makes it feel like more of an accomplishment too when we can do it together. So we have a member who's described being a part of Win at Aces as being life-changing. And I, I think the rest of us would agree with that. That five years ago, uh, nobody would have guessed that we're doing the things we are today with the people that we're doing, that any of it would have been possible. I think the biggest thing is working with non-traditional partners and realizing that groups like the Nature Conservancy really do care about um, family ranchers and what's happening to the people on the land as well as the land and the wildlife. And then the doors that that has opened to, to be able to accept those groups. It, it has opened a, a big door to all kinds of new knowledge, but also just resources and experiences. We've had, we hosted the um, World Wildlife Conservation Director for the United States who lives in Washington, D.C., but who's originally from South Africa here at our house, along with the um, Nature Conservancy North American Director. And we at Bill's house, we met with the WWF's grasslands people from all over the world. So people from Mongolia and Argentina and Africa not very often in rural Montana would you be in the same room as people from all over the world. I asked Laura about the role of a rancher as the steward of the land, her thoughts on that, and what kinds of things she's monitoring and connecting with when she's working out on the landscape here. 
So ranchers rely on their land for their business. So for that very simple reason of if we don't take care of it, we can't pay our bills. We're not going to be around for very long. But it's a lot more intimate than that too. It's our responsibility to take good care of it. And we're not taking care of it just for us. We're taking care of it so that it will be here, hopefully for our kids, but if not for our kids, the next people who are, you know, growing the nation's food or the world's food and taking care of not just the wildlife, but the, the plants and the, the soil and all of the rest of what goes into making a place a place is not something that people take lightly because they understand that it, it is a big responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their family and their neighbors and the, the people around the world who are relying on them. It's a heavy thing, I guess, in, you know, when we go out and we're looking around, you don't very often look at what's going right. You see the things that are going wrong. I think that's just human nature. <laughs> and so there's a big pressure to like, oh man, there, you know, there's cheatgrass everywhere. What are we going to do about the cheatgrass? Or it's easy to look at past, past generations too and think, oh man, why did they do that? And, and we're always looking at the fences and fences that need to be replaced and, you know, and thinking about it in upcoming work, but also in like, man, that's a five wire fence. We don't have any reason to have a five wire fence right there. And so we can put it back in a three wire. It's a very specific design, so the pronghorn can go under and the sage grouse can go through and the deer and the elk can go over. Um, but those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. But at the same time, also having to think about how doing projects that are going to benefit the land and the wildlife also cost us money and how we can pay for it. And that it might not be something we can do next year. It might be something that we need partners and we'll do it in 10 years when we can pay for it. And can you tell me, you know, you came back here and you're raising your kids here. What are those elements, whether it's things about your connection to the land and connection to the health of the land, the connection to hard work and community, what are those things that you really want to show for your kids and to have your kids really absorb in this lifestyle? Right. So we're really lucky in that we had an opportunity to come home, that my parents wanted us to come home and have made a um, a business structure open to a next generation working into it. That doesn't happen everywhere. Um, some parents feel like this is a life that's too hard that they don't want their kids to come back. Um, or their business isn't in a place that they can add people to it. And so the importance of figuring out a, trans, a ranch transition it is significant across the entire United States. It's something like two-thirds of farms and ranches fail because they don't have successful transitions to the next generation. So that was a really key piece in us being able to come home. But we wanted to come back, um, well, because when you when you see it, you see why you would want to live here. It's a pretty great place to live. Um, but you also, I think when you grow up in agriculture or grow up in a, a way that's connected to the land, it really is a piece of you and you feel, you just feel like that's where you belong. And you just know that's where you belong and should be. And so that's how it was for me. And I was lucky in that my husband shared that same pull, even though he didn't grow up here. Um, and, and we recognize too that there's like no better place to grow up than a ranch, right? And so if you can give your kids that opportunity, why not? And sometimes we think, man, maybe the only reason we're here is so our kids can grow up on a ranch. But um, we want them to both have, well, just the ability to like ride their bikes wherever they want to not have to worry about other people or cars or dogs or any of that sort of thing. Um, but also that they learn hard work and they learn the value of things. It would be easy to have a, a regular job and make more money and know where, <clears throat> know how much you're going to make. That would be, <laughs> that would be nice. 
but um but i think you know you value things more when you have to work for them harder and i think that's an important lesson for everybody to learn and it's maybe a little easier to learn it or to teach it on a on a ranch and then too that that our kids so they go to a small school but um the teacher student ratio is like one to six that's pretty amazing so no there aren't a lot of kids but they've got a really great educational opportunity there um, that a lot of other kids won't have they're in rooms with 30 kids and so um, there are a lot of benefits to a small school too and that was a big reason for us to to move home also uh, so kind of all of those things together and then that there just is I think it's just easier to have a sense of community in a rural place because you know everybody and you know what they're involved in and it's a lot easier to know what the projects are. And I was thinking about this the other day that it's not like there aren't a lot of needs or projects in urban places, but it's easier to get involved if you know the people who are working on them and can call them up and say, I want to work on that too. Then if you don't, you might see the problem, but not know who to contact to get involved with it. We move on to speaking about the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition, which includes four water user groups, several conservation districts, state and federal agencies, and local residents across five counties, all along the stretch of the Muscleshell River, which begins around White Sulphur Springs and runs all the way to the Fort Peck Reservoir and the Missouri River. Together, the coalition ensures that all voices come to the table to maintain a healthy watershed for all of the diverse life that depends on it. Like many places in the West, Water and water rights are a historically contentious issue in the Muscleshell watershed. The majority of land along this river supports agriculture, and by late summer, the Muscleshell River would regularly go dry, leaving water users in the lower stretch without water. As a result of this shortage, the Muscleshell River Distribution Project began, designed to encourage cooperation among producers, water managers, and water commissioners. This successful distribution effort has kept the river from going dry for the nearly 20 years since it began, and it prompted ranchers to look at the river more holistically, which paved the way for the formation of the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition. The Muscleshell Watershed Coalition started in about 2009, and it was Bill Melton who asked the water managers, there's three big uh, water user associations on the Muscleshell River, and he got those water managers together and said, We've got aging irrigation infrastructure, you know, that was built mostly in the 1930s. How much is it going to cost to fix it all if you look at the whole thing? And, you know, the answer is millions of dollars. So then the next question was, well, are we going to do that individually or could we maybe do that collectively and have a bigger effect and be more successful? And they decided, yeah, that if we work together, we probably would be... Um, more successful in fixing our irrigation infrastructure. And that's really kind of the conversation that started it. But from there, they, um, they included other partners, especially state partners, in the discussion. And then in 2011, there were massive floods on the Muscleshell River, anywhere from 150-year floods to 500-year floods, depending on who's looking at it and what part of the river you're on. But it affected all of the irrigation infrastructure. It affected the town of Roundup significantly, and then it affected individual landowners too. Most of the landowners on the Muscleshell are ranchers and are irrigators. We have a little bit of residential development, but not very much. Mostly is agriculture. So in 2011, the coalition worked with NRCS especially, but other agencies in recovery efforts. And since then, it's been a lot of planning efforts, a lot of resiliency planning. And I started in 2014 as the coordinator and I was the first staff and I just worked 20 hours a week. And the main thing that the coalition does is serve as the communication forum for all of the different partners working along the river. The river itself is 340 miles long. It was 375 before 2011. The 2011 floods cut, cut 35 miles off. That event served to really kind of pull people together to realize just how much the river connects them and also defines them. And so water delivery from Dead Man's Basin, which is between Roundup and Harlowton, 
used to maybe only take two days to, or three days to get to where it's going. Now the river is so much shorter and steeper, it goes much faster, and everybody has to adjust in learning new things. And so all of a sudden you're getting water at a different rate and in different amounts than you had the previous 50 years. The last two generations knew the river in a different way. And so that has made people more reliant on each other or reliant on each other's knowledge. Uh, which, which makes people work together more. And in working together, you realize just how many things you can do and that you can get a lot done. And so key partners with the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition are our first water user associations and landowners and conservation districts, county conservation districts. And then several state partners, FWP, DNRC, DEQ, um, and probably you shouldn't ever list them off because you forget somebody. <laughs> but, and then federal partners, specifically NRCS, and then occasionally like Bureau of Rec and the um, USGS. Not as many federal partners and not as many NGO partners in the coalition as with ACES, um, but a lot more government partners. And a lot of the projects, like I said, are, are planning projects. How do we better prepare? both for flood and drought and other natural disasters, and then, uh, and then specific projects for how we're doing, mostly still recovery from 2011 floods. On the mussel shell, when I started in 2014, I could say there were um, federal disaster declarations for three of the last four years. 2011 floods, 2012 there were massive fires, 2013 there were 100-year uh, floods and in 2014 there were 100-year floods again a really weird August event that put more than nine inches of rain in a few places that then um, the river rose from under 200 CFS at Mosby to over 20,000 CFS in about a day and a half. So can just continual dealing with mother nature in a way that does bring people together because everybody's experiencing some sort of the same just frustrations and challenges but then have the same partners helping them out um, and specifically DNRC and FWP and DEQ in those cases. The Muscleshell Watershed Coalition works closely with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks and specifically the Regional 5 Fisheries Manager at the time, Mike Ruggles. Mike is now the Region 5 Supervisor, and you can hear more from his perspective in another podcast episode with his interview. Mike admitted himself that folks often make assumptions about one another, and that there's a long-time stigma, hopefully becoming more and more outdated, that government agency and private landowners such as ranchers weren't known for working together well. In my experience in working in different areas around the state, I'm happy to witness some really healthy, mutually beneficial relationships on this front. I asked Laura about this and what makes Mike Ruggles such a great partner with landowners and the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition as a whole. The Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition does a lot of work with uh, Fish, Wildlife and Parks and Mike Ruggles has been a key person on the river. Uh, we're sad because he's moved up and now he's regional manager and we don't get to see him as much but he's been really important in helping landowners understand what's happening on the river. Because the river is now in the last 10 years a very different place than it was for the 70 years prior to that. Mike has a really good relationship with landowners and that's because he's honest. Same thing of that uh, they don't always have the same goals and the same perspective but Mike is really honest about what can happen and what should happen and what he, what his goals and priorities are so everybody is just up front with what's happening and but he also understands the value of being a partner and that partners are each supposed to bring something to the table he mike has an egg background too and he understands where people are coming from and that they have needs that are other than fwp's needs and how we can make those merge together to get something that's that's better for the river, which in the end is going to be better for everybody, for the fish and for the ranchers. And I will always bring up when we go to meetings to other places and people are like, what's the best way to get this information to the landowners? And I'll say, well, on the Muscle Show, our FWP fisheries biologist does that. When they're meeting with people and talking about projects, it's the fisheries biologist that can explain these things. 
And people sometimes give me kind of a blank look because that's not the case everywhere. We do have kind of, I don't know that it's unique. We have a great relationship with FWP and working on the ground. While the tangible work on the ground is key, Laura speaks to the larger value of what the coalition has done, and that is create connections. This simple concept is nothing to take for granted, and maybe some of you can relate to living in an area or even along the same river where folks are not only not communicating, but feuding over things that very well could be resolved through communication. So the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition has accomplished a lot in the last 10 years in both bringing dollars into the community for projects as well as the intangible benefits of people making connections and there a lot of what we do is just put people in touch with each other and then they work on projects that they might not have otherwise realized they were both doing um, and a lot of that is because there are so many different entities especially agencies doing different kinds of projects in the watershed so one example would be floodplain mapping and DNRC is doing floodplain mapping but the Muscleshell County is doing uh, floodplain reconnection in Roundup and they need to use the data from the floodplain maps that aren't finished yet and so then they can share that before it's finished. Just the impact that it has when you have multiple people whether they're landowners or agency reps or county commissioners or conservation districts connecting with people, connecting with each other and how that just spirals and goes in ways that you would never that you would never imagine when you first started on a project or first started introducing people and the the benefits are those intangible benefits of um, one more bank got restored or one more canal got lined or the diversion dam was built to allow passage of the little tiny red belly dace that maybe 10 years ago nobody heard about or cared about but through conversation decided that that was a species that we do care about and we want to design for and the water users spent more money than they would have had to 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 approve a design that allowed passage of that fish and um, and then other things too like if we're talking from one end of the river to the other end of the river, when the water rises, we know who to call downstream to let them know that the water is coming. And, or we know who to call upstream to ask if the water is coming. And things like that that didn't used to happen. And the water users didn't used to talk to each other because they were fighting over whose water was whose. And the agencies didn't always talk to each other. And for sure, the landowners didn't talk to the agencies. But now, when everybody's talking together, then you do get, you get a lot of stuff done. All of the entities mentioned here, Winnet Aces, Muscleshell Watershed Coalition, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, the Nature Conservancy's Matador Ranch Grass Bank, they're all collaborative entities within themselves. But amongst one another, they also overlap and partner with one another. I asked Laura to connect these dots for us and share her perspective on this ecosystem scale approach with the layers of collaboration weaving together. So I think once you start working in collaborative groups with people who enjoy working in collaboration, it just gets bigger from there. And so the across the central Montana landscape, the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition is working pretty specifically on the Muscleshell River, but is encompassed by work that Winnet Aces is doing and we're learning from each other, um, especially about uh, bank restoration and aquatic habitat restoration projects. And then um, reaching out to our partners on the north side of the river, what, who they know and what they're doing and how we can learn from each other specifically because I think that's the other key piece to collaboration is usually those people are lifelong learners and curious and want to know more about whatever it is they're doing and recognize that somebody somewhere else is doing it that we can learn from or potentially work together and pool our resources. And so it just, um, it becomes this network where we're all, we're all collaborating together. We end our conversation with Laura by asking her to tell us in her own words what is the value in having the local people of a place be directly involved in the decision-making of what happens in that place? So when it's the, 
the people who are living in the place that make the decisions about what are happening in that place, the, the long-term effects last a lot longer and are a lot more successful. Whether you're talking about land conservation project and doing it with landowners who are excited about it or doing it with the BLM that then they change staff and nobody ever knows that the project was ever done. Um, but it also it applies to social issues too and um, decisions that are made at the school. It all has to be made by the, the people that it's affecting because they're the ones that are going to keep it in place and keep it going. Thank you so much to Laura Nolan for sharing just a glimpse of you and your community's work. I know I became a personal fan of Winnet in just a brief time, and I'm excited to visit again and see how Winnet continues to evolve. You can find more info on Winnet Aces at winnetaces.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram. And on the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition at muscleshellwc.wixsite.com slash muscleshellwc. And they're also on Facebook. These links, as well as the links to the World Wildlife Fund's Sustainable Ranching Initiative and the Nature Conservancy's Matter to a Ranch, are in this episode's show notes. We encourage you to check out the other three podcast episodes, which hear from other voices in the central Montana Plains region. Also check out lifeintheland.org, where you can find the film featuring these voices from central Montana, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. And thank you to Cassie Heron for production assistance in the field. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of several Plains tribes who interacted with and stewarded all elements of these lands for thousands of years and continue this stewardship today on and off reservation land. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others and submit your own for us to share. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>